We're going to be reading from the last part of chapter 7 of the book of Nehemiah in the first six verses of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. The last verse of chapter 7 of Nehemiah and the first six of chapter 8. If you would stand as we read this scripture, please. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel in their cities, now the people gathered together as the one man <clears throat> in the square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it an open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for this purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, at his left hand, Padiah, Michelle, Melchijah, Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshelam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he had opened it, and all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Worship the Lord with our faces to the ground. Maybe seat, please. Over the last month or so, we've spent a lot of time talking about building things. And we focused on the rebuilding of things. And we have emphasized in the rebuilding of those things, both things that are physical and also things that are not physical. If you have been with us the last month, we have emphasized these things, and we've talked about Zerubbabel and the temple. We've talked about Ezra and the Torah, or the law of God, the law of Moses, and rebuilding hearts. And we've also emphasized together Nehemiah and this wall. I don't know if I've done the best job over the last month or so, but emphasizing that these things were completed. They were finished. In Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple was completed and the people rejoiced. Two weeks ago, we said that Ezra, when Ezra found out that the people were intermarrying among the pagan people, that Ezra had his moment and he pulled out his hair and he ripped his clothes and he sat down and he prayed. And when he did, that had an effect on the people because then they came to him and they said that they would change. And so it was with Nehemiah. That, that though there was opposition, there was, there was Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and at one point they had to work with one hand and they had to fight off people with the other hand, but though there was opposition and though it was hard work, the people had a mind to work. And when the people had a mind to work and they put their mind to work, we read in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse number 15 that the wall was finished in a stunning 52 days. And the people rejoiced. The people rejoice. In fact, the rest of Nehemiah, until you get to chapter 13, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we know that Nehemiah leaves and he goes to Persia and he goes 
comes back again to Jerusalem and he finds out that the people have fallen away again. But between that time of the wall being finished and chapter 13, we see that there are several things that the people do and that they celebrate. And I hope that you have your Bible open there to Nehemiah because we're going to examine a few of those things together this morning. There are a few lessons that we can learn before we get into the main part of our lesson. And I hope that you'll follow along as we look at those different things. Number one, God's work always has an effect on people. God's work always has an effect on people. I mentioned this in my class on Wednesday night, if you're here in the auditorium, but we see this throughout the Old Testament, especially as you go backwards from this particular point. Several times it comes up that people see the hand of God at work and they react, sometimes negatively and also sometimes positively. Maybe the biggest grouping of this kind of action is found in the book of Joshua. In particular, Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 10, we see where Rahab hides the two spies. And as you look there, you see that Rahab says, For we have heard how the Lord, and she goes on from there. She fills in in the next few verses about the things that they have heard that the Lord had done. And then in verse number 11, she makes a very strong statement because she says the idea that their hearts had melted when they heard the things that God had done. Their hearts melted. And she goes on to make a good confession of sort, not the same good confession that we make in the name of Jesus, but she makes a good confession when she said, we have seen the things that the Lord has done, and we are afraid because of the Lord your God, because he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so it is here as well in Nehemiah that once the wall is finished, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse number 16 tells us that their enemies heard and the nations saw and they were disheartened. Why was it that they were disheartened? Well, the Bible says because they perceived that this work was done by our God. See, God's work always has an effect on people. It can be negative and it can be positive, but it has an effect on people when they see these things. In fact, I'm convinced that even today, that even today, we have unbelievers. The Bible calls them infidels, but we have people who, who don't believe. We also have people that we might label as, as heathens. We might say that they're aware that there is a God, but they choose to ignore Him. They choose to not read His Word and follow what He says. And so even these heathens, even this group of people, I would say that even today, when they see something good that happens, especially to the people of God, they are prone sometimes to think to themselves, maybe this is God at work. Maybe this is the hand of God. And maybe they reconsider their position and their relationship with God. You see, God's work always has an effect on people. And we see that here in this moment when everyone realizes, everyone around them realizes what has been done. And they are disheartened because they perceived it's God. God has done this. Number two, we should celebrate success. We see that in the early of Nehemiah here, or the latter part, I guess I should say. But... But we realize that we should stop sometimes and we should celebrate success. We don't do that enough sometimes, but I think it's beneficial that we consider that. In Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verses 13 through about verse 18, after there is the reading of the word of God, we see that the people decide, based on that reading, that they need to start celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles again. It's also called the Feast of Booths. 
And so what they do here is they take time to commemorate their time of wandering in the wilderness by celebrating this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember that when they were in the wilderness, they had no permanent dwelling? There was no temple, no set structure, but they lived in tents. They, there was the tabernacle instead of the temple. And so they build these booths once a year, or they build these booths during this feast so that they can commemorate this time and remember when they wandered in the wilderness. In chapter 9, we see that the people confess their sins to God, verse number 2. But then notice in verse number 3, and you might want to watch yourself because this is going to be a theme today. You may need to brace yourselves. But notice in verse number 3 where they read from the law of the Lord for three hours. Question, what's the fastest way for a preacher to get in hot water today, right? Read for three hours. But notice, they don't stop with three hours. Keep looking. They go three more hours and they confess their sins. It is in the rest of chapter 9 that they go through some Old Testament history and they talk about the sins of the people. Chapter 10 opens and we see a listing of people who are going to sign this covenant. But then picking up in about verse number 28, we see what that covenant is and what it includes. And then in chapter 12... There's the dedication of the wall. And it's quite a celebration. It's quite a dedication. We see beginning in about verse number 27 that there is gladness and thanksgiving. There is singing and there are cymbals and there are string instruments and there are harps. There's not just one, but there are two thanksgiving choirs and the leaders are involved. There are sacrifices and there are, there's rejoicing so much Oh, that verse number 43 tells us that this, this celebration was so large that it could be heard afar off. People could hear what they were celebrating. And so all of these things are great. And they're fine, and the people take time, and they stop, and they celebrate. But that's not, we skipped over one main part. And our focus this morning is going to come from what was just read for us just a few moments ago in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I hope that you'll turn there so that we can examine this text together. And I want to say that I appreciate your participation this morning. It's hard to recreate exactly what was going on in that moment, in that time. And I appreciate Keith reading for us. And I appreciate you participating by standing for the reading of the Word of God. I know that's not common for us to do that. But I think that it would be encouraging for us to try our best to think for just a moment about what takes place here in Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, the question could be asked, what is it that we need most in our country today? What is it that we need most in our congregations of people? And we sang it just a few moments ago. We sing it sometimes together. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Revive us again. Some people say that what we need is a good, old-fashioned, God-fearing, Bible-believing revival. Some of you have been keeping up with the news and you're aware that over the last few weeks, about four and a half hours north of here in central Kentucky, there's been a, a small university called Asbury University where there's been a revival of sorts going on and it's captured the attention of the nation and some people have been encouraged by that. But maybe that's what we need is a revival. And when we look here in Nehemiah chapter 8, that's exactly what the people experience. We see that they have been in captivity. We see that they have now come back from captivity to Jerusalem, and several years have passed, and yet they still stand in need of a revival. What I'd like to suggest for you this morning is that there is a recipe here. 
There is a recipe for revival that we can learn from, and maybe, just maybe, we can put it to practice in our lives today. Maybe, just maybe, we as a congregation here can take what we read and use this recipe for a revival even in the year 2023. There are three words that are going to be included here. They're all going to begin with the letter R, and let's get into our text for this morning. First of all, if we're going to have a revival this, this morning in our lives, would suggest that we need a reading of God's Word. We need a reading of God's your Bible and notice in Nehemiah chapter 8 and in verse number 5. And Ezra opened the book of and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it. I want to make a statement and you can decide if you agree with it or not. But when God's people are together, the book needs to be opened. When God's people are together, the book needs to be opened. Wouldn't you agree with that? When, when you look at the text here, notice as well in verse number 3 exactly how long the preacher read. We're not where we were just a few moments ago, but notice it says, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Now, if you know your Jewish, Jewish time, morning would have been about 6 o'clock in the morning, and midday would be about noon. So question again, how long do you think I would last if I decided to get up here and read from 6 in the morning until midday? But can you imagine? Can you imagine if I had come in today and opened the doors and walked right up here to the pulpit and decided to just start reading the Word of God? And I read and I read and 9.15 came along. And there are some people who start to wander in and they, they wonder, what's he doing up there? Why is he, why is he just reading the Word? And then 10.30 comes along and it's time for worship to begin and I'm still reading. 11 o'clock rolls along and we've not sung one song. We've not prayed one prayer. We've not partaken of the Lord's Supper together as we've already done today. And I'm still reading. What do you think people would think about that? Well, it reminds me of a story that I heard once about a young boy who got invited to the Church of Christ for the first time. And he was invited by one of his little friends. And so they go together and the little visitor sits down with his friend and the service starts. The song leader gets up. And the song leader says, we're going to sing number 532. And so the little visitor leans over to his friend. And he says, what does that mean? The little boy said, well, he's the song leader. He's picked out these songs for us to sing today. We're going to sing praises to God. And, and that's, that's what that means. And the visitor seems satisfied with that answer. So he kind of sits back and leans back in the pew again. The service goes on a little bit further. And a man gets up and he's got a little packet. And the little visitor leans over to the boy and he says, what does that mean? And the boy says, well, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. You see, there's some bread there, and it represents the body of Jesus. And there's some juice or some fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Jesus. And we remember Jesus' death each week as we partake of these things. And the visitor seems satisfied with that answer, so he sits back in the pew again. A little bit later in the service, the preacher gets up. And as some preachers do, he leans and he takes off his watch and he sits it up on the pulpit the little visitor leans over and says, what does that mean? And the boy said, absolutely nothing. And he's not paying attention, not a thing is what that means. But think about it. Here, time does not matter to the people. They're not checking their watch. They're not pulling out their phone. They're not looking at the clock. They're not fidgeting in their seat. They're not getting up and leaving early. Time does not matter, for they are listening to the Word of God being read in their midst. But not only that, notice in verse number 8 that there is the explaining of God's Word. It says in verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they 
give us the sense and help them to understand the reading. So not only is there the reading of the Word of God, but there's also the explaining. Now, scholars might differ on whether or not this is talking about translation or interpretation or commentary, but it doesn't really matter. You know, we've emphasized a lot here about how the Lord's Supper should be one of the main things that we do each week, and I agree with that. Our song service is important as we praise God and we sing and teach and admonish one another, and I agree with that. But it also seems as if it's important that someone stand up and explain, not only read from, but explain the Word of God. We need a revival in this country. If we think we might could use a revival in this congregation, can I suggest to you this morning that it might just begin with the reading of the Word of God. But number two, we realize that we need to have respect for God's name. We need to have respect name of God as part of our revival. You know, we spend lots of time hand-wringing and lamenting and even arguing about what exactly is wrong in our world today. What, what's wrong with people? How is it that the world is so sinful and they get it so backwards? And we blame politicians and we blame other events and we go round and round thinking about what exactly the problem is, again, not only in our country, but just what's wrong with people today. Friends, can I suggest to you that I think it's pretty simple? We've lost respect for the name of God. Go out in public. Turn on your television. Listen to popular music. Go to a ball game. Go to a youth ball game. Listen to our young people. Hopefully not exactly our young people here today but listen to young people speak I remember about a year ago we were playing spring baseball and we were at the field waiting for Caden's game to start and Campbell and I were throwing the baseball in the outfield of a, a neighboring area and there were some boys who were playing they were just out of my earshot but they weren't outside of Hannah's earshot and we sat there for a little while and she got to where she just couldn't take it anymore their language turned so vile and nasty and awful that she finally got up and said something to them hey guys can you, can you watch your language? Can you tone it down? Go out in public. Watch TV. Listen to music. And you'll hear it over and over again from people. Oh, my. And they take his name just like they're calling Billy's name, Susie's name. We have lost a respect for the name of God. And when we do that, we see things start to crumble around us. We see people who live however they want to live. And it's a very, very sad state. Can I suggest to you from the text this morning three things that we see that the people do here as opposed to losing the respect from the name of God. First of all, we notice in verse number three that they are listening. The Bible says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were listening. They weren't playing with the babies. They weren't texting on their phone. They weren't talking to one another. They were listening. Now, before you get upset and say, well, preacher, I think you're talking about me because I've got kids or a baby and I, I've, I've checked my phone once before during service because I thought I got a message. I, I'm not, right? The attitude of the people here was of listening. I like to also kind of imagine as well that there were probably a few unruly babies and kids in this audience. There were probably a few stressed out parents who were trying to figure out how to keep their kids quiet while this man is reading the word of the Lord. I understand, and I know that it happens, but the attitude of the people was one of not being disinterested and not looking at every other distraction and thing around them. Their 
characteristics, their attitude was in listening to the Word of God. And we need to be attentive when the Word of God is read. Number two here, we see in verse number five that they were standing. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Again, I appreciate your participation just a few moments ago. I know it's uncommon for us to do that. But the people stood up. Question, when a judge enters the courtroom, what is it that people do out of respect for that office? When the president enters a room, what is it that people do? And I know before you say, Joel, I don't like the president, I understand. But what do most people do out of respect for the office? And let me ask you this then, okay? What happens when a bride enters the room or the area? And what should happen when the holy God of heaven is in our midst? The whole congregation, the bride of Christ should be standing. And if not standing physically, which we don't do the whole time, but at least they should be standing, we should be standing in our hearts. That is the respect that we should hold for the name of God. But not only were they listening and standing, but we see also they were bowing their heads. In verse number 6, at the very end, it says, And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord God, the Lord with their faces to the ground. That is what they were doing. Out of respect, their heads were bowed. This should be our attitude as we come to worship God. The psalmist say, says it in Psalm 95 and verse number 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, is that our attitude? Or are you like some of those people who say, well, why do I have to bow my head? Why is it that I have to close my eyes? That's ridiculous. I'll do what I want to do. And you begin to see the attitude that is a problem with that. I know it's not conducive, not only due to the pews in here, but to many of our health and our knees that we can't bow the entire time. In the same way, that it would be very hard for us to stand the entire time. But as I said a moment ago, it's not just about physically doing it, although that can be important. It's about our hearts. And our attitude. Are we standing before the Lord in respect for His name? Are we bowing down before the Lord in respect for His name? Or are we simply doing whatever it is that we want to do? If we're talking about a revival, if we're looking for the recipe for revival, can I suggest to you this morning that we need to be reading the Word of God, especially as God's people. But number two, we need to show respect for the name of God. Third thing that we might mention this morning is that we need to have a response from God's people. <clears throat> there needs to be a response from God's people. Notice in verse number 6 once again. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. Amen. Thank you. Why is it so hard for people to say amen sometimes in worship? Why, why is that? Some of you have been around our, our black brethren before, our black brothers and sisters, and you know I'm not trying to be any kind of way, but just stating the truth. If you've ever been to a congregation that's predominantly black, maybe before and visited with some of our black brothers and sisters, you know what happens, right? They start talking back to you. They say things like, that's right, preach your brother, amen. I heard a preacher tell one time that he had been to a place where there were a few black brothers and sisters there, and he said, as I started preaching, they started talking back to me. He said, and when they did, I preached better and I preached with more enthusiasm and I preached longer and now it occurs to me why some of you white people don't want to say amen sometimes in worship right 
Somebody sometime, every once in a while, ought to say amen in worship. Because the people are not just sitting there like knots on logs. They're not just sitting there trying to avoid the next few minutes so that they can get up. They're not just thinking about lunch, but the people are responding. And it says here that they are speaking. They're speaking back to the man as he is reading from the Word of God. But notice not only that here, but we see as well in verse number 9 that they are weeping. It says at the end, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Have you ever cried at the reading of the Word of God? I'm not being facetious. I'm not. I'm not asking if you've openly wept here in the middle of our services, but have you ever had your emotions moved by hearing the Word of God read in our midst? The people here are weeping. And Nehemiah corrects them in verse number 10. Notice when he says to them, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah even corrects them and he says... You don't have to cry. Isn't it interesting that people sometimes want to avoid coming to church services to worship? Because they say, I don't want to be told over and over again about my sin. I don't want the preacher to parade my sins out in front of me and for me to have to think about these things. For it to be pointed out to me just how awful I am sometimes. Friends, those are sorry excuses for not coming to hear the word of the Lord. We must follow in the footsteps of these Jews here in this moment when they heard the law of the Lord read, but then they weep when they realize their sinfulness. And then Nehemiah has the chance to say to them, but it's not over. It's not over for this is not, your failure is not the end of your story. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul famously says something very similar. Do you remember there when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what some people would say then is by that attitude, Well, you know what, Paul? You're right. I'm just a sinner. And as a sinner, I don't need the preacher to tell me over and over again how sinful I am. Paul, you're right. I've fallen. I fall short of the glory of God, and I don't want to hear it. But do you remember what else Paul says there? It's the same thing that Ezra and Nehemiah say to people. You are a sinner. But you are also justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It isn't over. God should be your strength. In fact, there is an amazing chain of life, if you will, here in this moment. Notice the chain of life here. Your strength for life comes from the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord comes from reading the word of God. That should be the chain of life. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you should sorrow over that in a sense, but you should turn your sorrow to joy that is found in the Lord, and that joy of the Lord is found in reading His Word. That's what the people have here as they weep. Again, they don't just sit like knots on a log. They don't just wait for it to get over. They're not thinking about everything else going on in their life, but the people of God are responding. They're both speaking out from time to time, and they're also weeping because they are moved because they are standing at attention and they are listening and all these things that we've mentioned already what we need in america and maybe across the world and maybe even here in our own congregation is a revival of sorts psalm 85 and verse number six the psalmist says again will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you 
A revival will come when we read the Word of God, when we have respect for the name of God, and when the people of God respond to the reading of that Word. Can I give you one last thing here about the, what takes place here in this particular text? Did you know that restoration or revival has no time limit? It doesn't. What are they reading? As they stand there before the gate, as Ezra is raised up on this platform, and the people stand attentive and listen and say amen, and they weep, they've read the word of the Lord. As we began, we said, we pointed out the fact that when they hear the word of God, then they go back and correct some of the things that they've been doing wrong, such as not celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. But did you know that there is not a time limit on restoration or revival? It had been over 900 years since they had received the Word of God. It had been over 900 years since the law had been given. But here's what happened. They listened to that same law and they kept it. They didn't adjust it for time. They didn't change it for culture. They didn't adjust it for geography. They listened, they respected, and they responded to the Word of God. We're thankful for the Word of the Lord and for the opportunity that it has to have, have an effect in our lives today. We do not live under that old law, but we live under the new law, which is God's simple plan of salvation. As we think about needing a revival, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a child of God. You've never put on Christ in baptism. We'll be singing to encourage you in just a moment. You can see the plan of salvation here on the screen. As we usually emphasize, we would take time even this day to study with you if you want to know more about what the Bible says that a person needs to do to be saved, to obey God's simple plan of salvation. We're about One of our elders will be coming forward here to the front to receive you if you'd like to come forward to the front and let us know about your desire to be baptized for the remission of your sins or to learn more about the church and what the Bible about the church and about baptism. If you're here this morning and you need a revival in the main way, in the way, we'll be singing to encourage that you would become a Christian of God, but you've wandered away from Him. You've lived a life that's not faithful. We read in God's Word of His second law of pardon. A person who becomes a Christian, has their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus in baptism, doesn't have to be baptized over and over and over again. You can confess your sins before God, repent of them before Him, and pray for forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to do just those things. To allow you to again walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 7. So again, in just a moment, one of our elders will be here at the front. That if you are a child of God and you've wandered away, you can come to the front if you would like to. And make your wishes known that we could pray with you and for you. Maybe you stand in need of a revival. Revival of coming back to God, placing respect on His name and in His Word, and living your life for Him. And we would love to assist you, even now as we stand together and as we sing. In the whole service, or not. So, we don't have to stand, but I'm going to come closer to you, so... I wasn't intending for all of us to stand until I saw all the postures at lunch. And I thought maybe we all ought to stand and help us a little bit uh, this afternoon. But I'm going to come a little closer to you. The last time I did this uh, is when the kids were gone to teen singing. So I didn't make them super nervous. But we're going to make them a little nervous this afternoon. Uh, and we're going to.
finish up with the study of Ezra and Nehemiah this afternoon and allow me one more time to say uh, that you allowing us to go through this, uh, to consider together. I hope that it's been encouraging for our kids. I hope that it's been encouraging for you. Uh, we want to encourage them and we want them to do well uh, on their Bible Bowl, on their tests and what they've been studying. But I hope you know at the same time is not to uh, score the highest in the most trophies in one sense. What we really want to do is help them be able to wrap their minds around these books and understand their place in the Bible and their place in the Old Testament and their place history of mankind and, and God's plan for man. It is interesting, of course I'm around mine a lot more than everybody else's, but it, from time to time something comes up and say, well I remember that from Joshua. Wasn't that when we studied Joshua or wasn't that when we studied Exodus? And so it just kind of happens that as we over these things that they stick with us a little bit and hopefully help us. We do want them to do well. That's part of the point of it, to try to help them with their tests and to see that they uh, do a good job and they learn some of these things. But in case we've not mentioned a little bit of this before, uh, the kids also know the test that they'll take this afternoon is pretty much straight from the questions. They'll send us the questions. The last leaders will be sometimes anywhere between 300 to 400 to 500 questions. And of course, they'll only answer about 60 to 100, depending on their age on the test, to learn. But not we get to the convention, by the time we get around to the convention and they actually compete there in person, they take some questions and turn the wording around just a little bit, just to see who's really been studying or has a photographic memory and can just remember A, B, A, C, D, B and go through all the questions that way. Uh, so they do, we do try to help them learn some of these things. I, we pointed out a few to them and said, you know, I can see where this is one that they might turn around. They might twist a little bit to see if you remember exactly what takes place in this moment. I hope that you have a better understanding of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, more so than it just comes after 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and a bump in the road to Esther, Job, Psalms, and all the books of the Old Testament. Now you know where they land and a little bit about these. What I thought we would do this afternoon to begin with is we're going to have a, few, we're going to have a Bible test right now, all right? And all you adults are saying, we haven't studied uh, but I got 10 questions, and we're going to see what you remember. And I'm telling you now, I put a few in there from the sermons that I've preached so far. So you can't tell me you haven't heard it at all. Now, this is the blue screen of death here. When the kids see this, they just roll their eyes and moan and groan. Uh, they miss the questions every year. It's this blue background. It's got white lettering on it. Uh, if, you were at our, if you were at our Valentine's dinner last week, um, you saw the questions we did. They were blue with white background because that's just what I conditioned to now to use. So I do have a few questions. Now, uh, you can if you would like to participate. Uh, what the kids do sometimes if we don't have A, B, C, and D, which is the way the questions go, they know to hold up A, B, C, or D. So those who are really brave, I guess, can do this. Those who are a little quiet can maybe do this if they want to. Uh, the bad news is, is that I don't have any candy to pass out for the most that you get, whoever gets the most right. The good news is, is that you don't have to do any write-offs or run any laps for the ones that you miss. The last few weeks, uh, the, we've challenged them. When we got down to the last question, we said, let's do our best that everybody get the last question right. And if you miss it, then you're going to have to run laps. And some of the boys go outside and run laps around when they're, when they're working. We're going to make a change.
There we go. All right. All right. So, ready or not, here we go. Number one, and these are, these are out of order. They're not writing in order. But according to Ezra 1.1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, what did the Lord stir up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to do? When they're that long, I don't repeat them. You're on your own. You've got to read it. So, was it A, to worship the Lord God of heaven? B, to make a covenant of peace? C, to make a proclamation? Or D, to make a vow to God? Why is it, what did the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, what did the Lord stir up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to do? I'll tell you this, most of you will get a pass. I'm looking right here to see what these fingers are doing here. I got a lot of C's and threes, and it is. Make a proclamation. The book of Ezra begins with Cyrus making this proclamation that the Jews can return back home. All right, that is number one again, but it's over in chapter two. Uh, the sons of the priest who could not find their listing among those who were registered by genealogy were excluded from the priesthood as what? As unholy, as unqualified, as unrecognized, or as defiled. The sons of the priest who could not find their listing among those registered were excluded as what? They always get worried when they're holding up different answers together. Carter, is that two or three or four? <laughs> it is defiled. So this was one that I preached on when we talked about Ezra. Remember that we said when they come back, they were sticking to the word of God. And there were some priests who could not find their genealogy, some men who could not find their genealogy among the priests. So what did they do? They say, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Just be a priest anyways. No, they said, if we can't find you among the genealogy, you will, will be defiled and you will not serve. According to Ezra 6, 5, who took the gold and silver articles of the house of God from the temple which was in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon? Who took the gold and silver articles and brought them to Babylon? A. Cyrus, B. Ezra, C. Nebuchadnezzar, or D. Tatanai? By the way, I apologize to Keith for making him read all those names this morning, too. Some of you are really concerned about how mean I was to Keith. And Keith even said, was this a new guy thing? Does the new guy have to read all the names when he up to read scripture? All right. The answer is Nebuchadnezzar. And here's where we challenge them to do some thinking. Because what is this from? Well, this is from the book of Daniel. Do you remember? In one way, because Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the, when the Babylonians come and take over Jerusalem, they take him into captivity. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Do you need to know that from Ezra chapter 6 and verse 5? You do. But if you know your Bible history, you can put this into its proper perspective. And you don't necessarily have to remember that verse exactly. According to Ezra 7.21, in the letter to Ezra from Artaxerxes, what was Ezra's title? Was it A, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven? B, the servant of the house of God? C, the scribe of Artaxerxes, or D, the magistrate of Jerusalem. There's a bunch of letters exchanged in Ezra. What was Ezra's title? All right, they got their little Christian light shining up here, some of them, but it is. He is the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. It mentions that in a couple of different places. And then the last one from Ezra, and then we'll do a few from Nehemiah. According to Ezra 9, 5, when did Ezra arise from his fasting? A, after he prayed to the Lord, B, at the morning sacrifice, C, after all the people left, or D, at the evening sacrifice. 
The answer is at the evening sacrifice. So when we talked about Ezra, we told this story. He pulls out his beard, he rips his clothes, and he sits down and he prays, and he stays fasting until the evening sacrifice, when then he arises and he has this conversation with the people. We mentioned that this morning as well. We didn't say the evening sacrifice, but it was uh, when, what Ezra did when he found out the people were intermarrying. All right, five from Nehemiah. I did five and five. According to Nehemiah 1.3, what report did Hanani and the men from Judah give to Nehemiah concerning Jerusalem? Was it A, that its walls is broken down and its gates are burned with fire? B, it is in ruins except for the eastern gate, which still stands. C, it is besieged and its inhabitants are without food and drink. Or D, it is being rebuilt by the heads of the families of Judah. This is the beginning. Nehemiah gets the word from someone back from Jerusalem, and he is upset because Jerusalem is, let me do a check, Jerusalem is A, its walls are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. It's still in disrepair. Nehemiah gets upset to then go do something about it. So chapter 2, verse 6, what questions did King Artaxerxes ask Nehemiah? A, what do you need and when will you return? B, how long will the journey be and how can I help? C, what do you need and how long will the journey be? D, how long will the journey be and when will you return? This was a bit of a challenge. I was going to see who might remember this one. I got some D's. I got a couple A's up here. It is D. Uh, we mentioned this as well this morning. Nehemiah comes for a while. He helps with the wall, but then he goes back to Persia to serve as cupbearer. And when he comes back the second time, in chapter 13, that's when they have fallen into issue and have fallen away from God. According to chapter 4, verse 7, when they found out the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, which two people were angered? Eliashib and Zakur, Merimoth and Meshulam, Kaz and Zadok, Sanballat and Tobiah. These are the ones I look at them and say, I'm going to be mad if any of you miss this one. All right, they got this one right. Sanballat and Tobiah. I said it this morning, but there's Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. There's actually three. We're going to talk about them in just a minute. Uh, but Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem who interfere with the work on the wall. According to Nehemiah 8.13, who gathered on the second day of the seventh month with the priests and Levites to Ezra in order to understand the words of the law? Was it A, the royal court, B, all of Israel, C, all the men of Jerusalem, or D, the heads of the fathers' houses? So this was our text for this morning. They come to read and to hear the reading of the word of the Lord. What does it say there in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 13? It says that it's actually the heads of the fathers' houses. Now again, did you get it right? Now again, just to challenge these, uh, to tell you the challenge they're up against, there are some questions that ask on which month or in which month, or on which day. I mean, it's that specific. And you've got to know if it's the seventh month, or the tenth month, or the first month. So uh, there's a lot of numbers that are sometimes involved. All right, last question. What did Nehemiah want God to remember him for? A, for leading the people. B, for diligence. C, for good. Or D, for service. Last verse in the book of Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah want God to remember him for? And the answer is C, for good. That's what Nehemiah says at the very end. And we're going to come back to the endings in just a few moments. So I told you that we would do a survey of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I just want to focus in on a few things 
uh, that we have talked about that maybe be of interest to you from a historical perspective. Uh, Hannah loves when I do history. Uh, it really interests her. Some of you, it may seem very interesting. Some of you, it may seem a little boring. Uh, but I do think these are a few things from the book. Uh, just about five things here I want to mention real quick and hopefully... Uh, you might find it something of interest. Number one, this is Cyrus's decree, or what's called Cyrus's cylinder. You can find this in the British Museum currently, uh, and it's from around 539 B.C., and this is when Cyrus conquers Babylon. Now, in Ezra chapter 1, and I don't know if you want to open up your Bible, we're going to look at a couple of verses in just a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus makes this decree. Here's the interesting thing about what Cyrus does. Cyrus allows all of the people who were taken captive by Babylon, all right? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they've taken the Jews captive. But not just the Jews, they've taken over the whole world. They're the world power right now. And so they have this, when Cyrus comes onto the scene, he makes this decree, this Cyrus cylinder that allows all the people taken captive to return to their respective homes. He also is able to repatriate the religious articles that would be associated with those respective deities. So you, you folks go and take this, and you folks go and take that, and that's what he does with this decree right here, with this cylinder. Now, among those people who are released to return home are the Jews. But we do not have a citation, uh, archi, a specific citation, archaeologically of a reference to the Jews in this. In this, you won't find a reference to the Jews exactly, specifically being allowed to return home. But as we look at the book of Ezra, and again, Ezra chapter 1 and verse number 1 there, it is pretty clear that there was a specific directive to the Hebrew people. So maybe there's a second part of this, or a part 2, or another cylinder that has some of the writings about the Jews in it. Because later we read, and the kids have studied this, but later we read that they go to the archives to try to find this directive. So this, it seems like there was a very specific directive for the Jews. And as we read just a moment ago with the very first question, this is also to be to make true what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is prophecy coming true to them. And so it may be separate from this particular cylinder right here. And that archive, the archive that says specifically the Jews are released, it's not been found yet. It may be, it may not be, but that particular archive has not been found yet. As I said, this is in the British Museum. And if you ever get a chance to travel over there and maybe visit that museum, um, we do, this is one of the stellar presentations uh, that characterizes the connection with the Bible and with us. Um, I did want to make mention across the bottom, I tried to give credit. A lot of this information comes from a lecture and one particular brother. The brother in some of the photos is taken by a man named Farrell Jenkins, who's done a lot of uh, trips to the Middle East and to the Bible lands, and he's taken a lot of photos that he'll allow you, know, you to use or preachers to use in, in, uh, in their sermons and things with just giving proper credit. So Farrell Jenkins is the brother who's given some of the photos. But there was a lecture at Fried Hardeman a couple of weeks ago when we were there uh, by a professor from Harding, Harding University, by the name of Dale Manor. And in watching that, he shared some of this information. And I thought, if you do like history, uh, this will be kind of encouraging to you. All right, the second thing this afternoon is the trip that the Jews made back. 
The first return, remember I had those three black boxes on the screen a couple of weeks ago. The first return in the top left-hand corner was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel leads the first group of people, and there are about 50,000 people who decide to return after that Cyrus decree. And what's interesting is, he mentioned this, but I had forgotten, but some of you remember from your, from your history classes, there's a yellow arrow that kind of blends in with the map. Uh, sort of to the, the, the thir middle third of it to the left, there's a yellow arrow. When we talk about how they returned home, what would they have followed when they were returned home? They would have followed the Fertile Crescent. Anybody remember that? I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But if they were to go from Babylon, uh, which is kind of in the middle of the map, straight across, they're most certain to die. They're not going to make it because of the travel, because of the heat and different things. So they follow that Fertile Crescent, and they have to go up, and there's a good chance that it probably would have taken them quite a few months. Now, I know I've said it before, but we joke a lot in our family about, you know, our limit for travel. You know, if it's about eight hours, we're probably going to have a hard time. Everybody's going to start fussing and be tired. When, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get out of the van? It probably would have taken several months of traveling by donkey. Uh, these pack animals that would have things, uh, you know, draped over them, carrying their stuff, and traveling with 50,000 people, not six not four, but 50,000 people all trying to go together. And so Zerubbabel and company return about 538, and they follow that fertile crescent back up and over and around back to Judah. One of the things that's mentioned in the book of Ezra, and if you have your Bibles, you can look in Ezra chapter 3 and verse number 7, is the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon. When they are going to go back and they're going to rebuild, rebuild the temple... Chapter 3 of Ezra in verse number 7. They also gave money to the masons, excuse me, and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, I've joked with you about genealogies and how sometimes genealogies are difficult to read through. How many times had you might have passed over this particular verse? And it doesn't mean much to you. But on the map here on the right-hand side, you can see just a little bit a red arrow where, and across the top, you can see something that you would still see sometimes in our history, right? That all these trees are failed and they're put into the water and they're floated down the river. And so by that red arrow, Tyre and Sidon are much higher on that map. And where the arrow stops in the middle of the, that map is Joppa. And what they would do is that they would take those trees, those cedars of Lebanon, put them in the water, and travel them all the way down the river to Joppa where they could get them then, and then they could take them to the right over towards Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing about the cedars of Lebanon. It's what, exactly what Solomon does in 1 Kings chapter 5. In 1 Kings chapter, King chapter 5, when Solomon builds his temple, he uses cedars from Lebanon. Now, some of you true Tennessee people know as well, I, I, uh, Hannah's always talked about this, but there's a state park in middle Tennessee called the Cedars of Lebanon. I don't know if you, any of you have ever been there before, but in Tennessee, there's a Cedars of Lebanon. Miss Suzanne, she's a middle Tennessee person back there. She's nodding at me. I'm, I'm not wrong. Uh, there's a Cedars of Lebanon state park there around Murfreesboro and that area kind of in middle Tennessee, and so you can visit that. But these are the cedars of Lebanon. Now here's the other interesting thing in the bottom left-hand corner. That is a picture from Sargon II, who has a picture in his palace, and it's, I know it may be hard to see, but of logs floating down the river. 
Sargon II. And here's the thing about Sargon II. He predates the children of Israel in Ezra and Nehemiah. So, you know, sometimes we look back at these folks and we say, boy, they sure were old and they sure didn't know what they're doing. We've got such better ways of doing things now. But you know what? Sometimes we do exactly what they did because it's just the easiest way to move things and to get it done. And so in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 7, when they're going to use the cedars of Lebanon, that's not new. It had been going on for a long time. And even today sometimes we might still try to move, uh, we still might try to move wood that way. All right, there it is uh, a little closer. All right, two more things here and then we'll conclude this lesson. Uh, this morning we talked about Ezra chapter 8. And it said in Ezra chapter, or excuse me, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, it said in verse number 3, Then he read from the book of the Lord in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. This is an artist's rendition of what the water gate might have looked like on the side of the city of Jerusalem. There's a red arrow, if you can see, at the top. And, of course, that map is actually kind of flipped upside down with the way that arrow is pointing. But that was the water gate because it was a gate that led down to the Gihon Spring. And that was where they could go out that gate and they could go down and get that water that they probably desperately needed, right? At times, uh, they might need to you know, make sure they have plenty of water and they would travel out that water gate. Now, the key here, of course, is that we have no idea maybe exactly how large it was, exactly how, you know, that seems pretty small <laughs> in my mind's eye for a whole lot of people to assemble there and have the book of the law read. But either way, as we can see the ruins and understand what we know about Jerusalem, um, this is the water gate where Nehemiah chapter 8 happens, and they stand, and there's the reading of the word, and it's that called that because they could travel down then to the Gihon Spring to get their water. All right, one more thing that I want to make mention of here, and if you have your Bibles, look in Ezra chapter 4 and verse number 4. Back to Ezra one more time. Ezra 4, 4. We mentioned that there were at least three main men who led in the trouble and the opposition to Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the walls. They were, went by the name Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they were men who were going to lead this sort of rebellion. And it kind of broke off of in Nehemiah from Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4 what happens is, is that Zerubbabel wants to rebuild the temple. And when he goes to do that, there are some people who never left this area, by the way. I know that's a pretty big map, but, that's, but that is people who never, they didn't go into captivity. Some people didn't. And when they return from captivity, they say, oh, we want to help. And Zerubbabel says, no, you, you can't help us. We do not want your help. And so in Ezra chapter 4, in verse number 4, it says, Then the people of the land tried to discourage, tried to discourage the people of Judah, they troubled them in building. So back up in those first three verses, we see where Zerubbabel tells them, you don't have a part in this. You know, we have come back from captivity. We are going to do this rebuilding. You don't have a part. And so we see some of the first people here who kind of come up with what we might say is take my ball and go home, right? If you don't want my help, that's fine. I'm going to take my marbles. I'm going to take my ball. I'm going to take my game, and I'm just going to get out of here, and I'm going to go home. So eventually, these people in Ezra chapter 4 who are told no, they offer to help. Zerubbabel says, no thanks. They go elsewhere. They take their marbles and go home. And they build a rival temple on a mountain that's called Gerizim. A Mount Gerizim. Now, this is an aerial view of an excavation of that particular area, this particular temple. The big square platform kind of in the middle is a much later uh, uh, addition to this area. 
But underneath all that, they have found the ruins of a courtyard that was associated with a temple, the old temple of Gerizim. And it was destroyed during the Maccabean Rebellion. Now, we're going to talk about the Maccabees maybe in a few months, hopefully, when we get to the intertestamental period. But during the Maccabean Rebellion, a lot of this was destroyed. And so here is a picture. And it's looking at the land of present day. And as you sit on your left is Mount Gerizim. The mountain on the right is Mount Ebal. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you've seen these before. Mount Ebal on the right, Mount Gerizim on the left. And this is where, this is where we're talking about. In the middle, kind of that valley that splits those two mountains, is Shechem and Jacob's well. Now, this is a picture from Mount Gerizim looking down into that valley Mount Ebal is on the other side, and you see here Shechem is in the middle. If you can make it out from your seat, it's pretty distinct there. There's a section in the middle that doesn't have all the houses on it. And over to the right is Jacob's well. And this is interesting because we come about it later in the Bible. So we're going to come back to Ezra and Nehemiah for one concluding point. But if you want to turn over to John chapter 4, you may have recalled this. When you hear that name that was mentioned just a few moments ago. But in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. Where? At Jacob's well. Right there on the right hand side of that picture. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And this is exactly what we are talking about. Now it's in John chapter 4. Do you remember chapter 4 in verse number 20? Jesus has been talking to her about living water. She's talking about water. He's talking about living water, everlasting water. And she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Picture in your head for just a moment. She's standing at Jacob's well. And as we're looking at it, what would she be doing? She'd be pointing over her shoulder at Mount Gerizim. This is the temple that these men would have been a part of building as a bit of a rebellion away from the temple that they were rebuilding in Ezra and in Nehemiah. But when Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And of course, Jesus is going to go on to say to her, These mountains really aren't going to matter in the end. Whoever worships must worship in spirit and in truth. But isn't it interesting, as Mr. Manor, Brother Manor was pointing this out in his lecture, I thought, you know, I've always heard that, but it is kind of helps us to imagine in our mind this woman turned around and saying, this is where our fathers worship. What's she talking about? She's talking about Mount Gerizim and that temple that we saw just a moment ago that was in ruins. All right, let's make a little application here and we'll be done. In Ezra and Nehemiah, at the very end of these books, some people say we have very weird endings. Have you read through the, the book of Ezra? Notice in Ezra chapter 10, in verse, well, beginning in verse number 18, there is the pagan, the people who are putting away these pagan wives. And so here's a bunch of these names that are difficult to pronounce. And verse 44 says, All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And that's it. It's kind of a weird ending, is it not? I mean, why not some happy conclusion? Why not some great encouragement? But that's just it. These are the men who took the pagan wives, and some of them had children, period. We're done. Okay? What about Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 13, and there's three different verses there. Notice in verse number 14, 
that Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Then he's talking about the, the evil they were doing, the bad things they were doing. They were desecrating the temple. They were not following the law. And then in verse 22 it says, in the middle of it, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. And then remember that it's in verse number 25 that Nehemiah says, I struck them, I cursed them, and I pulled out their hair. We've said that Zerubbabel built the temple. In Nehemiah chapter 13, they're desecrating the temple. They're doing exactly the, uh, the work against what Zerubbabel did. Ezra rebuilt hearts and the law. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, he finds out that they are not following the law. They're desecrating the work of Ezra. Nehemiah rebuilt the temple. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, we find out that they're sitting outside the temple and they're selling things and they're desecrating the wall. They're desecrating the work that Nehemiah did. So the book ends with him getting upset about it, pulling out their hair, cursing, striking them. But in verse number 30, this is the last question we answered just a moment ago. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. The question about Ezra and Nehemiah, well, I guess not the question, but the statement that we can make is that they wanted to be remembered for good, and they stuck by that. They did their best to follow what God had said to do, to read from the book of the Lord, and to respect it, to respect his name, and to obey him. And Nehemiah says, I want to be remembered for good. I know that's kind of a, a quick overview and a few questions, but as we commonly do here, we're going to take it here in just a moment and sing a song of invitation. And I think these weird endings, especially with Nehemiah, still kind of strike home for us. We pray that God would remember us for good. The question that we're about to sing is, do you know my Jesus? We're thankful that we don't have to offer sacrifices in the same way that they did, but we must. We must. We must know Jesus. If you're here this afternoon and you can't sing this song with confidence because you do not know him by being a child of God, by being washed in the blood, then we'll sing to encourage you that you might be added to the church by the Lord when you've been obedient to his plan of salvation. Maybe you're here, and even as we mentioned this morning and as we've said through Ezra and Nehemiah, revival, restoration is hard. And we wander away, we fall away, and we stand in need of coming back to him. We're thankful that God has blessed us with an opportunity this afternoon, and we're thankful to encourage you even now as we stand together and as we sing.